today on Against the Grain, a look at solitary confinement through the lenses of race, mental health, and neoliberalism. I'm CS, Terry Coopers, forensic psychiatrist and author of Solitary, the inside story of supermax isolation and how we can abolish it, joins me, coming right up. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. My name is C.S. Song. You were thrown into solitary confinement because, only because, you tried to defend yourself against a fellow inmate's advances. You get angry at the unfairness of it all, angry at the way you are treated in solitary, and you lash out and you are sentenced to more time in solitary. Days turn into weeks, weeks turn into years. It's a tragic tale, a terrible predicament, and it's a story that Terry Coopers knows well. Terry is a forensic psychiatrist and professor emeritus at the Wright Institute Graduate School of Psychology in Berkeley. His books include Solitary, The Inside Story of Supermax Isolation and How We Can Abolish It, and Prison Madness, The Mental Health Crisis Behind Bars and What We Must Do About It. He contributed an essay titled Supermax Prison Isolation in Pre-Crime Society to the volume The Pre-Crime Society, Crime, Culture, and Control in the Ultra-Modern Age. Terry has testified in numerous class action lawsuits about jail and prison conditions, sexual abuse, and the quality of mental health services inside correctional facilities. When Terry Coopers and I connected recently, I asked him what a supermax is. That's an excellent question. Let me just say that it's wonderful being on the show with you again. I just really appreciate your very rigorous intellectual work. Um, A supermax is a prison that's basically dedicated to solitary confinement. It might be a cell block in a otherwise uh, very diverse prison, or it may be a specialized prison entirely dedicated but it's about solitary confinement where people spend nearly 24 hours a day in their cell. There's almost nothing to do. There's a toilet sink appliance in the cell and people uh, get very upset by it and have major psychiatric problems. How often and for how long are people held in solitary, let out of their cells and for what reasons? Well, this is a subject to debate between experts like me and correctional staff. Um, The rules are that they should be let out for a certain number of hours per week to a recreation area. I do not believe it's a recreation area. It's basically a little cage, usually a little bigger than the cell. And for most people in solitary confinement, they actually don't get five hours a week, which is supposed to be the minimum. And the reason is because the staff is too busy or because they're mad at somebody or they find them to have violated some uh, very uh, minuscule rule and they deny them their recreation. They're also allowed out for visits and it's very limited the visits they can have and for showers, which for instance, in many settings in a supermax, they're supposed to get three showers a week People in those settings tell me they actually get one a week or less than one a week. So it varies and it isn't all as nice as the authorities portray it. What about eating? Where do these people eat? They eat in their cell. They're past a food tray. Uh, A big uh, cart of food trays is brought to the tier and uh, they're passed out by officers through a little slot in the door. Often they're not very hygienic. Often the meals are cold by the time they get there or they just get bologna sandwiches. The food in prison is pretty miserable. What are the dimensions of a typical solitary confinement cell if there is such a thing? Well, there are what we call standards. The American Correctional Association, the American Public Health Association, the National Commission on Correctional Healthcare have standards. According to the American Correctional Association, 
if someone is going to be in their cell nearly 24 hours a day, that cell should be at least 80 square feet. So that's eight by 10. Now at San Quentin, the cells are four and a half feet by 10 and a half feet. So like San Quentin, a lot of prisons don't meet the um, space requirements uh, set in the standards by the American Correctional Association. So often the cell is very small. And in some cases, individuals are double celled in a small cell. So it's very crowded. If you walk into a prison cell at San Quentin, you can touch both walls. A average size man can reach out sideways and touch both walls at the same time. So it's very cramped space. What percent of people in prison are confined to solitary confinement units? There are different ways to look at that question. If you look at it is the last year what proportion of prisoners in the United States have been confined to solitary confinement? It's up around 20 to 30% of prisoners spend time in solitary confinement. It's also called segregation, the whole, et cetera. Now, if you look at one moment in time, there are between three, maybe five, up to 8% of prisoners are in solitary confinement, a lot of them in supermax situations. The state of Florida, it's about 11%. So it varies from state to state, but that's a big proportion of prisoners. So being put in solitary, uh, having to spend so much time all alone uh, without stimulation, uh, maybe being let out for very short periods of time into sometimes, as you said, small, quote, outdoor cages that are no larger than the cell in which this, the the very small cell in which this person is being held. What are the emotional and psychic effects of solitary confinement on human beings? Human beings are basically social animals. The two things that are absolute minimum for life as a human being are social connections and meaningful activities. Both are denied to people in solitary confinement. So the results are very predictable. We've done a lot of research on this. I've interviewed maybe well over a thousand prisoners and at least 500 of them are in solitary confinement when I meet them. Relatively stable people develop a lot of very disturbing symptoms, very high anxiety, approaching or being panic attacks, uh, huge problems with sleep, insomnia, thinking problems. Their thinking becomes somewhat either confused, it often becomes paranoid. They have trouble uh, remembering, trouble concentrating, They tend to do compulsive acts like pacing or cleaning the cell over and over again or counting cinder blocks. Um, Despair is very prevalent. The rate of suicide in solitary confinement in prison uh, is sky high. So we have a average statistic that 50% of successful suicide attempts in prison happen among the three or five or 8% who are in solitary confinement. So it's pretty much a cause of suicide. That's in people who I call relatively stable when they come into the picture. But people who have a pre-existing mental illness, actually their mental illness is exacerbated. So people with schizophrenia go into states of almost perpetual psychosis with hallucinations and delusions. People with bipolar disorder have extreme mood swings, worse than ever before. People with major depressive disorder become very despairing. They stay in their bed all the time and they have a very serious problem with suicide. So it exacerbates serious mental illness. These effects are long lasting. I've written about what I call the SHU post-release syndrome. SHU is the acronym in California, Security Housing Unit but it's become nationally a acronym for supermax solitary confinement. Um, People who have been spent a lot of time in solitary confinement, uh, when they get out of prison, 
or just when they get out of solitary and go to the general population part of the prison, they have very severe symptoms and disabilities. For instance, they stay to themselves. They're afraid of crowds. They don't want to relate to people they don't already know. And then they have many of the symptoms I just listed that they developed while they were in solitary. This can last a lifetime. Uh, we have some recent research that in the year after people are released from prison, those who spent a lot of time in solitary confinement have a much higher mortality rate within the first year of leaving prison. So the damaging effects are just extraordinary. And I think some of what you said overlaps with your with your statement that solitary confinement tends to lead to the the decimation of life skills. Yes, that, that is a way that I just summarize all of what I just said. That is, people are destroyed in solitary. Um, it, it is very, very damaging, and it's very unlikely that people who have been in solitary for a long time, with exceptions, which we should keep in mind, but people will just not function when they get out of prison. So we have to look at what's the purpose of prison. Are we trying to destroy people, or is there any uh, hope of rehabilitation? There are exceptions. Uh, we have one who I think maybe you've had on, the, on your show or has been on KPFA, that's Albert Woodfox, one of the Angola Three. He and Robert King, another of the Angola Three, uh, prevailed after uh, Robert was in uh, solitary confinement at Angola State Prison for well over 30 years. And Albert was in solitary confinement for 44 years. And they know about the symptoms I've just outlined, and they see it in all the people around them, and they've fought those symptoms all the time they were in solitary. But Albert comes out, and he's a public figure fighting to reform the prison industrial complex. He's written a brilliant book called Solitary. And he doesn't show the signs of the decimation of life skills that I've talked about. And that's because acts of will, and I think people who have a political understanding of why this is happening, for instance, the racism involved in the prison industrial complex, the relationship of prison today to slavery of the past, people who understand that don't blame themselves for what's going on. And they come out of this very um, torture experience relatively healthy. Terry Coopers joins me, K-U-P-E-R-S, on Against the Grain. I'm C.S. Song. He is a forensic psychiatrist, professor emeritus at the Wright Institute in Berkeley, and the author of books like Solitary, the inside story of supermax isolation and how we can abolish it. Terry, in this essay we're discussing today that you contributed to a new volume, it's called The Pre-Crime Society, Crime, Culture, and Control on the Ultra-Modern Age. You bring up the case of Horace, and you can tell us in a moment whether that's sort of a, a composite profile or a real person. I imagine you're not using his real name. The case of Horace, a black prisoner in a maximum security prison who was sentenced to 90 days in solitary confinement. Why was Horace put in solitary and what happened to him? Horace is a black man. Actually, there is a person I was thinking of and I altered some of the facts to, to protect his anonymity. But it's also the picture that I painted of Horace fits dozens of people I've met in solitary confinement. He was a very solid black man, had a lot of integrity, and people tended to come to him for advice. He just was very wise, and he would be sort of a mentor to younger prisoners. In prison, there is a dominance hierarchy, and it's not just the guards and the prisoners. There's a dominance hierarchy there, so the guards just totally oppress the prisoners. But among prisoners, there's the strongest will prevail, and there are many fights. Unfortunately, some of the fights turn into sexual uh, predation, so that the winner of a fight on a prison yard is going to rape the loser of the fight. And that way, it's not so much a sexual act as proving his dominance. 
Anyway, another prisoner challenged Horace and was making sexually uh, provocative statements and demeaning statements. And it was a situation where if he didn't fight, then he would probably be victimized by other prisoners. So he got into a fight. The guards broke up the fight. And the next question is the guards say, who started this or who did what? And there's a code among prisoners. There's an honor code that they just do not snitch on each other. So of course, Horace was silent. He said, I don't know. And that's how he got in solitary confinement. The solitary confinement, the first sentence was for 90 days. Well, in solitary confinement, guards are very intimidated by intelligent prisoners. So they tend to give them a hard time sort of trying to get their goat. And that's what they did. And he would usually be able to kind of avoid that, but sometimes he would get upset with an, a guard. He'd say something, they would give him another ticket for insubordination or disrespect and he would get a longer sentence, solitary confinement. But once in solitary, another symptom that's very uh, usual in solitary confinement is mounting anger. Individuals, including Horace, tell me, I just keep getting angrier and angrier. I don't know what it's about because nothing in particular different is happening. And then I try very hard to suppress the anger so I won't get into a difficult situation with the guards. So the anger leads to some disruptions, which then cause further disciplinary tickets and a longer term in solitary confinement. That's what happened to Horace. As you write, Horace went from being sentenced to 90 days in solitary, went from that to spending 12 years in solitary confinement. Was Horace's race a factor in him being sent to solitary confinement? And to what extent does race play a role generally in who gets put into solitary? I have been doing this work for 45 years, meeting prisoners, touring prisons, testifying in court. It's my very firm conviction that first of all, prisons are the epitome of racism in our society. And racial um, discrepancies, racism, uh, basically rules the prison culture. If you think about it, teenagers, young black, particularly males in the inner city, do a certain amount of drugs. Middle-class white males do approximately the same amount of drugs. But the arrest rate, the number of times that a young black male on the street is stopped and frisked, something like a um, roach is found on his body when, before marijuana became legal, and he's charged with a crime and he goes to court, often being convicted and going to prison. It happens so much more frequently with young black men than it does with young white men that you have to make the assumption that there's something basically racist about our criminal legal system. The same is true when someone goes to court. When black individuals are arrested, they tend to spend the time until their trial in jail whereas their white counterpart is going to be released on bail or on their own recognizance. Black defendants are convicted more often than their uh, white counterparts. They're given longer sentences. A huge majority of three strike sentences are meted to black defendants. And then in prison, they have a rougher time. And in fact, the statistics show that a much larger proportion of black prisoners are put in solitary confinement and they stay there longer and the time until they're paroled is longer than for white prisoners. A lot of racism involved. I've seen Ku Klux Klan tattoos on the wrists and chests of prison guards. All of this is just symptomatic of the racism that prevails behind bars. And you bring up in this article, and I think in a number of contexts, the notion of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, to what extent is a self-fulfilling prophecy being enacted in terms of race where corrections officers, hearings officers, or parole board members, because of 
racism get their assessments validated uh, after the fact? You know, if you walk into a prison, you see the racial inequities immediately. So you, you go to the shops where people, a certain small number of people are learning how to do woodworking, how to make cabinets, how to, how to use their hands in a skilled way. And most of the prisoners in that shop are going to be white. Then you go into solitary confinement and you see that a hugely disproportionate number of people in solitary confinement are people of color. What happens is that officers approach people of color differently. They do not allow them much leniency. If there's a fight, they're going to go and uh, beat up and basically arrest the individual who's a person of color. And this happens over and over again, and everybody in prison knows this. So there's a, a general bias that certain people are, are more trouble than other people. And that happens to be the people of color. What I wrote about in the article about the pre-crime society is that psychologists and psychiatrists collude with this racist tendency. And they do so by applying diagnoses. For instance, the diagnosis of antisocial personality. I have seen antisocial personality as a diagnosis on the chart of a huge number of people in prison. Contrary to common belief, people in prison are not very often qualified for antisocial personality. A 18-year-old kid who robs and uses a weapon and such might qualify for the diagnosis, but what happens to most of those kids, most of those kids and people go to prison at a very young age, they're massively traumatized all through their childhood. They often drop out of school and they're subject to um, substance abuse. I, I think a lot of the substance abuse has to do with the prior trauma and an attempt to self-medicate for the pain related to the traumas that have happened in their life. I'm CS. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. Terry Coopers joins me. He's a psychiatrist with a background in psychoanalytic psychotherapy, forensics, and social and community psychiatry. We are talking about an essay he contributed to the volume, The Pre-Crime Society. His essay is entitled, Supermax Prison Isolation in Pre-Crime Society. Right, so you were talking about antisocial personality disorder. So this is an established disorder. And you are saying that um, young people especially tend to be diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. And many of them end up in jail or prison. And, you know, they are diagnosed by the authorities. Tell us a little bit more about uh, what antisocial personality disorder encompasses in terms of attitudes and behaviors. And then also, you have observed and talked with, interviewed many people who were diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder when they first entered prison, maybe in their late teens or early 20s but who had been behind bars for years, maybe decades, maybe now were in their 30s or mid-30s or 40s. Uh, tell us about your experience observing them and, and what you've seen as far as their personality characteristics. Antisocial personality disorder is one of the personality disorders in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual. It has to do with breaking laws, breaking rules habitually, not caring about the feelings of the victims when the law is broken. And it has a bunch of other personality traits, a lack of empathy, seeking stimulation, a absence of delayed gratification and discipline, um, a superficial charm, but no serious concern about the other person. Uh, so there's a long list of traits that go along with the antisocial personality disorder. Young people 
people who go to prison, usually the first time go to prison in their teens or early 20s, usually for a relatively minor crime. And then what happens, they get trained inside the prison culture and their possibilities are cut off so that when they get out of prison, they get into further trouble. They're also harassed by law enforcement officers. So they become lifetime, uh, over their lifetime, they go in and out of jail and prison. Now, the 18 year old who does a crime probably didn't care much about the victim of the crime. Teenagers, you know, that's not their strongest fort. And possibly antisocial personality disorder fits for certain people in that age group when they're doing the crimes, maybe doing drugs, and they go to prison. But on their chart, on their mental health chart in prison, every time they see somebody, the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder, which they got when they were 18, is continued. It's just brought forward to the next note in the chart. I meet people when they're in their 30s and 40s, and I notice on their chart that it says antisocial personality disorder. I meet them and they have none of the characteristics of antisocial personality disorder. They're very sincere. They have a lot of um, integrity. They have empathy even for me while I'm interviewing them. They're capable of great uh, delayed gratification and discipline. They just don't fit the diagnosis. Now, here's the empirical fact. People of color are much more frequently assigned the diagnosis of antisocial personality disorder than white people. In prison, the fact that they have that diagnosis, it's a very bad stigma. And what it means for the mental health staff is that this person is probably not amenable to mental health treatment. They're also not considered eligible for rehabilitation programs. They're more likely when there's trouble to be punished with solitary confinement, which makes them much less able in the future to um, function and to do the things one needs to do to first win parole and then to succeed at going straight after being released. Again, it's disproportionate people of color who are given the diagnosis ASPD and it sticks. And then they both spend more time in solitary confinement on average, and they're not considered a good candidate for parole by the parole board. So they end up doing a longer term in prison with more time in solitary confinement. If you study the racial composition of the people in solitary confinement, it's disproportionately people of color. People go before the parole board and white prisoners are more likely granted parole than people of color. So my interpretation of all of that is that it's racism playing out in the criminal legal system, but also the psychiatrists, the mental health professionals are colluding by supplying a diagnosis, which first of all, on the face of it is wrong. It doesn't fit the person of color who's in solitary confinement in most cases. And second of all, it becomes the rationale for the officers who throw prisoners into solitary confinement or for parole board that denies parole. The rationale is they have a disease, ASPD. And it's in that sense that I say the ASPD diagnosis is a self-fulfilling prophecy. The prophecy is this person is a criminal type and isn't gonna do well in the straight world. And then what's done to the person, solitary confinement, delaying of parole, so they spend more time in prison, is actually gonna to tend to make them less successful at going straight when they get out. Terry, do you think part of this also is laziness that psychologists or mental health staff within prisons and jails, they don't take the time and effort you know, after a period of time, like a decade or 15 or 20 years to actually re-examine the person who, when younger, was diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder in order to see whether they still exhibit the characteristics and features of somebody with that disorder? Well, that is true. 
and that is the fault of the mental health staff. I, I believe that what happens is that mental health staff in corrections are very subject to burnout and they're very much under the authority of the officers of, of, of the guards. And the prison is, is a disciplinary system. Um, disciplinary systems are not a good place to practice mental health treatment. And the mental health practitioners then become more and more like guards because they're not able to provide the kind of mental health treatment they would like to supply. And yes, that's why in an uncaring way, they bring the diagnosis ASPD forward and then that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. I think there's another level to this though, and that is it's a legitimation function. In our neoliberal society, we have an unprecedented and growing gap between the rich and the poor. And meanwhile, we're cutting off relatively with our funding priorities, cutting off social welfare safety net programs. These programs were aimed at disadvantaged people. Those people don't do well. For instance, people with serious mental illness today, there are 10 times as many people with serious mental illness behind bars as there are in psychiatric hospitals. So what this society has done is during a period with a widening gap between rich and poor, which is the neoliberal agenda, and a decimation of the social welfare safety net programs, a lot of people get into trouble and end up in prison. Those people are both disappeared from society, for instance, homeless people who have substance abuse problems, go to jail or prison, and then society basically can forget about them. But also they're stigmatized that the fact that they're not thriving in our democratic society is because of fault within them, which is either a mental illness or it's antisocial personality disorder, so that people can go on about their lives without paying attention to all of the disadvantaged people who end up either homeless or in prison and say, well, that's just because of it's their fault. There's something wrong with them. Antisocial personality disorder is a label for that phenomena. Of course, is disproportionately applied to people of color and poor people in general. So it all becomes a legitimation of putting people behind bars while the gap between the rich and the poor widens. That's the voice of Terry Coopers. He's a forensic psychiatrist. He is professor emeritus at the Wright Institute Graduate School of Psychology. He's contributing editor of Correctional Mental Health Report and a frequent consultant to the ACLU's National Prison Project and to Human Rights Watch. His books include Solitary, the inside story of supermax isolation and how we can abolish it and Prison Madness, the mental health crisis behind bars and what we must do about it. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm C.S. Song. You note in this article in the book, The Pre-Crime Society, that there has been debate in the scientific literature about the importance of age as a factor in risk assessment. Tell us about this. Well, there, there is a very clear correlation of youth with crime. In fact, I can draw a graph where you'll see the crime rate, it's also true of the substance abuse rate, um, rising precipitously in the mid to late teens. It keeps rising through the mid 20s. And by the late 20s, it starts turning downward so that you get a curve that starts low, goes up in the middle, which is in the early 20s, and then comes down again. And that's the average for everybody, for people who go to prison and people out in society in terms of drug use, in terms of breaking rules. So the empirical research on how well people who have been in prison do when they get out of prison the empirical research shows that when they pass the age of 40, and particularly when they pass the age of 45 or 50, they're very unlikely to do crimes or to be violent. Now there are exceptions every which way. So that's not across the board, but it's a correlation and it's a pretty strong correlation. 
Well, there's been some debate about that. And there's been some, I think, uh, rather questionable scientific work showing that that tendency is not so much uh, in play anymore. I don't believe it. I believe the research that attempts to show that is faulty. And so that's what I was mentioning as a debate. But it's a debate about risk assessment. In the pre-crime society, Foucault said this, the psychologist or psychiatrist plays the role of legitimating the criminal legal system. So the idea that if someone has a diagnosis of ASPD, or if someone is getting older and there is no connection between age and their relative peacefulness, um, then they deserve to be in prison the rest of their life. It's, it's a rationale. And that rationale then serves to justify the gross inequity in society, because there are some people, there are people at the top of the heap, the 1% or the rich, uh, who are enjoying uh, yachts and luxuries. And then there are people who are suffering torture in prison. And that's as it should be, because they deserve it. Either they're a criminal type or they have ASPD. So moving from criminal type, which isn't a scientific sounding uh, notion to this person has antisocial personality disorder. That's why they're in prison and suffering rather than it's the inequities in our society where because of the color of their skin or because of where they grew up, they're unable to find meaningful employment. And that's where the legitimation crisis is today. And that's how psychiatrists and psychologists collude in demonizing the people at the bottom of the heap. And, and does the debate in the scientific literature that you do bring up about the importance of age as a factor in risk assessment, does that also reflect a belief that you have that the science around risk assessment is just reflexively considered valid and that needs to be rethought, that, that assumption needs to be rethought? I think what we have to do is have confidence in the potential for people to rehabilitate themselves. People who make mistakes in their teen years or early 20s should not be condemned to a life in prison. And that's actually what the Supreme Court decided in terms of juvenile offenders who are given life without parole. And the Supreme Court decided that's not fair they need to be resentenced and we are having resentencing hearings now. We have to have confidence that people will tend to right themselves if given a minimum of support to do so instead of being punished and tortured. So definitely that's what the argument is about. And I think that's where the bias of the group who are now saying there isn't such a strong correlation with young age and criminal activity. I, I think there, I've reviewed that literature, it's pretty faulty. And I think it's actually just an attempt to leave a certain subpopulation uh, to die in prison. Has mainstream thinking about solitary confinement, the advisability of it changed in recent years? current thinking about solitary confinement, I think there's a widespread consensus that solitary confinement causes a lot of harm. And so I'm asked over and over again, what's the alternative to solitary confinement? You've got people in prison who are fighting or having trouble following the rules. The alternative is to work with them. If they have a mental illness, give them quality mental health care. If they lack skills to get a quality job, give them the skills while they happen to be stuck in prison. That's called rehabilitation. Give the people who have an interest a education. And in all of these ways, improve their lot so that when they get out of prison, they can live a quality life and participate in society. That is in fact the way things are going right now in the criminal legal system. There is a move to reduce and end solitary confinement and as an alternative, there need to be uh, enhanced programs to help people with mental illness, to help people who need skills or an education. And that's going on around the country. Quite a few states have passed laws limiting the use of solitary confinement. 
Maine has done that, particularly with people with serious mental illness. Um, New York has now done that. New Jersey passed a law that nobody should be in solitary confinement for more than 20 days. Um, there is an international standard, the Special Rapporteur on Torture, Mendez, the recent past Special Rapporteur, said that any time in solitary confinement more than 15 days constitutes a human rights violation or torture. And states are following suit. They're reducing the amount of solitary confinement. It's written into the standards of the American Psychiatric Association, even the American Correctional Association. So we're seeing a consensus that we have to move away from the cruelty of solitary confinement. In order to do it, we have to reinvent rehabilitation and that's going on around the country. The idea of the pre-crime society is that our risk assessment, faulty as it is, legitimizes leaving people to rot in solitary confinement. If we're gonna move beyond that, what we have to do is figure out how to help people get along. It's interesting that in states that have um, adopted that approach, for instance, North Dakota is notable these days, they are reducing the population in solitary confinement greatly. If it's true, the reason for solitary confinement was this, these are violent people and they need to be confined inside the prison in a cell by themselves. If that was correct, when you release them from solitary confinement, you would expect the violence rate and rule infraction rate to rise. In fact, in North Dakota, in Colorado, and in other states that have reduced solitary confinement, the violence rate and the rule infraction rate have decreased significantly, thereby proving that solitary confinement serves no good purpose. And if you release people from solitary and give them meaningful activities, education, vocational training, just meaningful jobs, then you will not have the violence and rule infractions in the prisons that have been such a problem for the last several decades. I'm joined by Terry Coopers. He is a forensic psychiatrist Professor Emeritus at the Wright Institute in Berkeley and an expert on solitary confinement and on uh, mental health issues behind bars. Has the North Dakota Department of Corrections been influenced by models established in Scandinavia and in Norway in particular? And if so, what models are being developed there and what's being proved by the way that, for example, Norway treats the people it incarcerates. The thing that sort of underlies the entire approach to the criminal legal system in Norway and the Scandinavian countries is that we're all human beings trying to get along with each other. Certain people uh, fall along the way. They fall on their face. They either get into drugs, into crime, whatever. They get into homelessness. As a society, we have a responsibility to pick those people up. So in the Scandinavian countries, all of them, Norway happens to be the focus these days because a lot of American correction officials have gone to Norway to see what they're doing. They don't put so many people in prison. Their prisons are small. We have over 2 million people in prison in the United States. We have the highest proportion of prisoners of any country, advanced or not advanced. We have 5% of the world's uh, population, 25% of the prisoners, and we have a greater proportion in solitary confinement. What does that say about the state of American democracy? In the Scandinavian countries, they put far fewer people into prison. They have far shorter terms. And as soon as they get into prison, the staff, which is not guards, by the way, a prison officer in Scandinavian countries is required to have a certain amount of psychological education, a certain amount of education, of, of, of training in, in education itself, and security training. And they work with the prisoners. They put them in one or another form of training or job that is aimed at preparing them to go straight after they're released. The staff is trained in de-escalation, 
they're trained in sensitivity to people with mental health problems. And therefore, their recidivism rate is much, much lower than it is in the United States. If you brutalize people for years while they're in prison, they're not going to do well when they get out of prison. However, if you treat them with respect and you help them to develop the skills they need to succeed in the world, then their recidivism rate is going to be much lower when they get out of prison. They also do things like work programs. Prisoners who are near release will be released in the daytime to go take a job in the city that surrounds the prison. Or they will be kept in the prison in the daytime while they do their job, but they're allowed to go home to live with their family at night. And these are transition approaches that help people to make the adjustment back into the community. What's happening now is that a lot of American correction authorities and criminologists are going to look at the programs in Scandinavia, particularly Norway, and the Norwegian program is what has guided the North Dakota reforms that are so exciting today and are becoming the new model for corrections in the United States. What has the COVID pandemic done to the number of prisoners put in solitary and the reasons for the use of solitary confinement? That is a very important question, C.S., Um, First of all, the bottom line is that the use of solitary confinement has grown by more than 500% during the pandemic. It's rationalized as medical isolation or quarantine. But what actually happens in effect, for instance, at San Quentin, people who were either exposed to COVID-19 or tested positive or were sick, were placed in the adjustment center which is the supermax solitary confinement unit, notorious at San Quentin. And then they had to be in the solitary confinement while they were suffering, um, either not knowing whether they had COVID or actually being infected. That's the downside and that's unfortunate. The positive thing is that we've actually had an experiment in decarceration. I, I think everything I've said today requires a very robust decarceration movement. That is, we need many, many less people in prison and jail. And that's, that's the idea of the abolition movement. And that's the idea of everybody who has any wisdom about the criminal legal system. So during the pandemic, LA County Jail and Rikers Island both released between a quarter and a third of their population, just release them. And that way the people they released would be uh, much less likely to get sick because jail is just like a Petri dish for COVID-19. You're stuck between walls. Often you have a cellmate, the ventilation is terrible. You can't have social distancing. The guards don't wear masks. The guards don't on average don't get vaccinated as much as the population at large. So being in jail or prison is like a huge risk of getting sick and then also getting very sick and dying. So the people who are released are saved from that fate. Meanwhile, the people who are left in the jail and prison, now the jail and prison isn't as crowded as it was before the pandemic. And they're more likely to get services, assuming the staff stays at the same level. So that's what we saw during the pandemic. And like all things in our society, there's a division about this. Some jail and prison systems are rushing to refill their cells with people and cause crowding again and all of the negative things we've been talking about. Others are saying, let's try to keep people out of jail and prison. The mental health and medical services work much better. We have better jobs, better rehabilitation programs for the fewer prisoners. And let's keep moving in that direction. That's decarceration. And I think the pandemic has given us a wonderful workshop on how to do that. Did you say earlier that the American Correctional Officers Association, I'm not sure I got the name of that organization right, has actually come out publicly in support of reducing or limiting the use of solitary confinement? Actually, it's the American Correction Association, which 
includes a lot of correction officers, but more, um, it's more weighted toward correctional administrators. And yes, they have come along, they're slower. The uh, National Commission on Correctional Healthcare, which is medical, correctional medical people, and the American Psychiatric Association, the American Public Health Association, have all condemned solitary confinement and pointing out the huge human damage, the psychiatric dysfunction and such. The American Correctional Association is one of the last to come along. And yes, they have said mental illness is not just schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, but any emotional problem that makes someone less than functional, that person should not be in solitary confinement. It's too likely they will commit suicide or just fall apart psychologically. And therefore, in every way possible, solitary confinement should be avoided. And that's the American Correctional Association. The correction officers are more resistant and they tend to be on the other side of the battle. Terry Coopers, psychiatrist with a background in psychoanalytic psychotherapy, forensics and social and community psychiatry, professor emeritus at the Wright Institute. You might wanna check out his books, Solitary, the inside story of supermax isolation and how we can abolish it, and Prison Madness, we've been talking about his essay, Supermax Prison, Isolation, and Pre-Crime Society. That was contributed to the volume, The Pre-Crime Society, edited by Bruce Arrigo and Brian Sellers and published by Bristol University Press. Uh, Terry, thanks so much for your work and for joining us today. C.S., thank you. It's such a pleasure to talk to you, and I appreciate the opportunity. And this is C.S., suggesting the important thing is not to stop questioning, as Albert Einstein once said, and we hope you'll join us next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. You can visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio, resources, and more. You can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio, and you can follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. <laughs>